Hello, everyone. I'm Liz Hunt. And I'm Chelsea Poppins. And this is the Agency Rocket Show, where we discuss everything that has to do with the chaos of running a creative agency. So today we have the most special of guests. He's very dear to my heart and I'm pretty sure some of you can probably guess why, but it's because he's my husband. (laughs) His name is Andrew Hunt and well, we've been married for 17 years. Is that right? It just changes every year. Somewhere between 16 and 17, something like that. We've been married a while. So Andrew has played a very crucial role in the building and forming of Daycloud, our creative agency that Chelsea and I now run. So Andrew actually helped me honestly get it up and running and like started. And he helped me so much in the very early stages of getting Daycloud formed and going. Andrew has several business degrees. He's in finance. He's now the partner of a financial advisory firm called Highly Hunt Wealth Management. And he is also the CFO of Daycloud currently. That's how he kind of serves us now. And yeah, best he serves as kind of like a business consultant now for us, uh, Chelsea and I. And Mm -hmm. Also, he's my sexitary, so <laughs> just, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. You didn't think I was going to say that, did you? So Andrew's a so man of many talents. titles. He's a renaissance man, regular renaissance man. So he, he's a CFO, husband. I was waiting for you to spit out your drink, but you know, your eyebrows just went up. That's all. So yeah, I've been, been around <laughs> a long time, so it's, a, it's hard, not hard to show. shake me. Yeah. Not, not a kid show, everybody. I'm sure you uh, figured that out by now. No, Andrew boy. has that consistent resting bee face. He's just like, mm. resting just, unimpressed face. Unimpressed I'm, okay. face. There it is. Ac- actually, that is kind of true. <laughs> <laughs> it takes, takes a lot to get me excited at this point. Yeah, that's true. I am definitely the spice for sure here. <laughs> but, Sorry, Andrew. But that's, why, that's why I love him. At Daycloud, I know we really appreciate Andrew and his financial expertise and knowledge. Uh, we've had him come in and talk to the team about handling their money and budgeting and the value of a dollar and every single yeah. one of them in the after effects, like, oh, he's so wise. I mean, I don't yeah. want to get to your head or anything, Andrew, but like, yeah. we appreciate every piece of information that you bring to us and the ways you help us at Daycloud, but also personally. So yeah, thank you for that. For sure. Yes. <laughs> he has all kinds Thanks of for me. expertise. Yeah. Thanks for being here, Andrew. Welcome. Obviously, Liz and Andrew built Daycloud. So I'd be interested in hearing, Andrew, your perspective from the ground up to where you're at now, especially since you are <clears throat> a little more removed from the company than you initially were. And now that I'm a part of the company, I'm your replacement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I think it's kind of fun to go back and start from the beginning and talk a little bit about how how this all came to be. Uh, and then we can talk a little bit about how my roles transformed over time, maybe. But it all really started, you know, Liz and I met uh, working at a coffee shop, the 
fall of freshman year of college. And Liz and I both came from backgrounds with parents with kind of traditional jobs. Liz's dad is a high school science teacher. My dad is a pastor and engineer. And so I didn't really have any exposure to small business growing up. Really, we didn't interact with people that I really knew who were doing small businesses. And so it wasn't until I was working at the coffee shop that for the very first time I was exposed to a small businessman. His name was Jay Baker, and he was the franchisor of the chain of coffee shops that we were working for. And it was a really kind of important time for me because he and I would sling lattes all morning and then we'd sit around the coffee shop and we'd talk about business ideas. And it was really transformative for me. It really kind of gave me some insight into what I might like to do. Now, of course, I'm pretty conservative because I became an accountant. And by the time I graduated with an accounting degree, I was so committed to that that I thought I should probably go do something with this degree. And so I took kind of a more corporate mainline role. And all of a sudden, Liz's freelancing had found itself at a place where she had uh, some significant clients. One of them was Creighton University, a big university here in Omaha. And that project was so big that they actually asked her to come be on site at Creighton University. And so I have these like really nostalgic memories of Liz's first office, which was on site at Creighton. It was a decommissioned chapel picture like a big room that would normally have pews, but all the pews were gone. And she was sitting at like a six foot table in the middle of this chapel. It was dusty, dirty. <laughs> there yeah. was uh, like dead, dead bugs everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and like hadn't dead. been cleaned in years. Totally Bankers boxes piled up in the corner <laughs> and Creighton came to Liz and they said, Hey, there's so much work here. It was, it was a huge project, new brand mm -hmm. refresh and rollout. And they said, there's so much work here that we think that we should hire another designer to help with this. Uh, would you rather us go find somebody and bring them in? Or would you rather ask one of your friends and just kind of put them underneath you and, and, you know, we'll just go through you. I'll never forget. Liz came home and kind of told me about the conversation. I said, hold on, <laughs> whatever you do, don't let them go out and hire somebody else. Tell yeah. them that you'll bring in your own designer and it'll all just run through uh, your one freelance contract. And that <laughs> was the genesis of what became Daycloud. Yeah. I think it was just Liz Hunt at the time. Yeah. Um, and that became Daycloud. It was like mm -hmm. a really pivotal moment for us. And I'll never forget it. It was very nostalgic. Yeah, it's super true. I remember that moment as well, because it was such a pivotal moment for us and for me because it it literally was all of a sudden i became a business it changed the trajectory of my life because i wasn't a freelancer anymore i wasn't a solopreneur anymore andrew told me to literally just say this one thing like nope have this designer invoice me and i'll invoice you university, hey client, you know, I'll just invoice you for their hours. And all of a sudden I became a business. <laughs> and things know? got infinitely more complex. I think this is how oh, a yeah. lot of entrepreneurial ventures start. You have one huge customer, uh, you know, and mm -hmm. I've seen this time and time again in my consulting practice is you've just got one huge customer. And that is like maybe 80 or 90% of all of your revenue, all of your sales. And then you start tacking on staff to do the work. And so you insert lots of risk because you've got single customer risk and mm -hmm. you've got to start creating processes, you know, like mm -hmm. everything from how does the leader get the work and disseminate it to the staff? How do we track how profitable and efficient that staff is? How do we incentivize them to be efficient? Mm -hmm. All this, all these things that all of a sudden is like, 
this is like running a business. <laughs> you know, before it was like, get a project, do the work, turn it in, get paid. Right. Yeah. And all of a sudden you got to start thinking through, well, how are we going to track our time and how are we going yeah. to bill in a systematic way that we can make payroll every couple of weeks and, and quality um, assurance. That's right. It's what good quality. that they're doing. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And that's, it, that was very true to form for us. I mean, we, we mm -hmm. very quickly found ourselves in this place where we're, you know, on internet forums, finding out what the best project management software is, what the best time tracking software is, using the good old fashioned Google to figure out like, okay, I know how to make art. I know how to design a brochure, but I don't know how to have an enforceable contract. <laughs> you know, like what or if- how to price you know, is, anything. We've got 80% of our revenue. I think in our case, it was like 90% of our revenue and one customer. Yeah. Yeah. What if they don't pay us? You know, yeah. <laughs> like that was the first couple of years. In fact, we stayed on campus there at Creighton, I think for like two and a half years or something mm -hmm. like that, maybe three mm -hmm. years. We um, had, we didn't have to pay rent, but they had no holds barred on what project we did. They had 24-7 yeah. access to us, basically. Which was great. That's how we built yeah. this. I think we went from just yeah. you to, I think by the time we left, we were four or five people before we, uh, they came back and said, Hey, we re we remembered that you're just squatting in this space. Oh, you should go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this space is massive. And yeah. what? Like, yeah, this building yeah. is abandoned. What? <laughs> we need this oh, yeah. real estate. Actually. You're just sitting in here. <laughs> you should go. Yeah. You're, like, you're not even a Creighton employee. Yeah. What? Yeah. We had to go rent yeah. office space after that. Yeah. yeah. And, and you're like, we actually have been squatting for this many years. And I guess we own it. <laughs> <laughs> and well, like, I remember like, we couldn't even be mad. We were just like, no. yeah, it's time to grow up yeah. and go get an office yeah. space. <laughs> I mean, that was great. But I, I love that. You know, I think there's a lesson there for the folks that are listening is that like, there's a temptation when you're launching a venture to think that you have to do certain things to be legitimate. And what I tell people is like, listen, like scrappiness is part of having a successful venture, especially mm -hmm. in a services business. It's really easy to go out and get committed to a bunch of different leases and buy a bunch of hardware, buy a bunch of software subscriptions. And before you know it, your burn rate is super high. But especially in those early years, just being really scrappy and being like, they're going to give us this for free and like we don't have to do anything with it. That's the dream. That's how you get it done. Because at the end of the day, cash oh, yeah. is oxygen. Mm -hmm. you know, you, like that, having that cash flow, that free cash flow, what we could have been, would have been spending in rent allowed us to, you know, be more profitable and to go, yeah, go get talent. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's super interesting because I mean, most entrepreneurship journeys are not a polished process in the beginning. No. And like, it is a fake it till you make it kind of thing in the beginning. You're like, I'm doing, I'm doing my own business and it's chaos that yeah. it's being scrappy. It's being gritty and learning all the things yeah. that you don't know, but while pretending, you know, them or just being, I'll find out, I'll figure yeah. this out like yeah. mentality. And I think that is most of new business owners and them figuring all those different areas out of financials, employees, yeah. and what it is like to manage people instead of just yourself and being a freelance or a contractor. For sure. In fact, when I run into people that don't have that kind of like figure it out mentality and they think they're going to go start something, I always kind of hold my breath for them because first of all, there is no one who's prepared to go be an entrepreneur if they've never done it before. And mm -hmm. having that figure it out, do it yourself mentality is really what it takes to win. The people that are waiting for somebody to give them some sort of operating manual or standard operating <laughs> procedures on how to do things 
it's not going to work. Um, and it doesn't I, and, exist. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> exist. And sometimes, you know, I see people like, oh, I'm going to go buy a franchise to kind of solve for that. But then they, then that's not going to work either just because the franchise can only tell you how to operate the, the entity itself. It's not going to tell you how to figure stuff out. Very true. Okay. So, Andrew, let's talk about some of our big financial mistakes that we've made as a company. The biggest one that I can think of is, you know, when we started, and I say we because I was I was much more involved in the early days. Today, mm -hmm. I you know, I don't do much. With Daycloud, I do the books and pay pay vendors and cover some of our legal uh, activities. But at the beginning, legal activities, yeah, no, you got to cover those. Just, just the legal, <laughs> making making sure we have enforceable agreements. <laughs> to be clear, we do no illegal activities. No illegal. There's nothing illegal. Daycloud is a front. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Oh my god. I'm kidding. Okay, Go I'm, I'm a legit employee. <laughs> no. Oh my god. Literally right before we started this podcast, Chelsea called that she and I would be making jokes and Andrew would just sit there quietly <laughs> while waiting for us to finish our jokes. And I just want to point out that's exactly what just that's happened. Right. Yeah. This yeah. is exactly what just happened. This is how it usually goes. Liz and I will be laughing about something and Andrew will be like, all right, I'm going to wait for this to be done and I'm going to continue on my topic. He doesn't yeah. find us funny. We think I we're hilarious. You think, yeah. Uh-huh. And so- I just don't want anybody then... to think that we're doing anything illegal at day club. That would be, that'd be kind of crazy. <laughs> Andrew's like, this is not funny. I'm just going to sit here until you guys get over this joke. Chelsea well, literally called that. That is We'll, we'll put a disclaimer amazing. in the, in the mm -hmm. show notes. It'll be yeah. fine. It's great. Okay. But continue please, on. Please continue, sir. So in the early days, I, I was super involved with uh, the primary functions of selling and kind of doing some of the relationship management stuff, trying to go out in the world. And our, and our philosophy is this with sales. And it's my philosophy my entire career, whether it was selling creative services or wealth management services or consulting is really our objective is not to go out and kind of kick tires for new business. Our objective is to go out and make relationships and have people love us so much that they couldn't imagine hiring anybody else for their project. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were doing a lot of that in the early days. And after a while, you realize pretty quickly that that doesn't really scale or that's, that's a lot of work to do that. You get really good projects out of it eventually. It's a long sales cycle to do that. And creative services, by the way, if you're wondering, it's an extraordinarily long sales cycle. It mm -hmm. takes a long time to get a business to engage with you for the quality of project that you want. Okay. For a five-figure website, doing... for a major, major branding project. Yeah. These things take years to come together. A lot of times, yeah. Yeah. sometimes people just call you and say, I want to do something next week. But a lot of times the good projects... It takes a long time. So we, we realized like, gosh, you know, my practice was, was really building at my other job. And, and so was, I was having less and less time. So we thought, you know, what we ought to do is we ought to bring in professional sales team. Uh, and you know what, guys, we have tried this at least twice, maybe three times. Do you want to tell uh, them the story of the first one that happened? Yeah. And the first one was we were having a, a beverage with my best friend and I Hold said, up. Hey, be, be honest. You yeah. were having a beverage with That's your what best I said. friend. Oh. I was having a beverage with my best friend. And he were, was, I wasn't, they were trying to I find was, a way to get back to Omaha. I was not and, there. Well, I think you were there. You just weren't there no. yet. And, uh -huh. and, and, I showed up. Yeah. I showed up and found out that you had hired him. I didn't hire him. I said, hey, <laughs> you know what you know, could work is if you want to move back to <laughs> Omaha, you could come work for us and you could sell. Uh -huh. Yeah. 
It was going to be great. <laughs> was it great? Was it? No. It didn't work. And every time we've ever tried this, it's never worked. In no. fact, like uh, we've tried. Hold on. Well, I mean. You are not in sales anymore, John. I you know, was like, in sales. If it was so you effective. If it was so effective, why aren't you uh, still selling? I, I would come back yeah. to it and just say the cost relative to the return on investment was not there. Uh, yes. And we would lament about this. One of my favorite stories is uh, Drew Davies, kind of a, you know, he's kind of a hero in the Omaha market of uh, great design shops. He had a shop called Oxide Design for a lot of years. Liz was sitting with him at a, you know, again, having a beverage and lamenting like, hey, we've, we've tried hiring sales forces like two or three times and it just it doesn't work. Like quality of projects aren't what we can bring in ourselves. And he was like, oh yeah, I've tried that too. And uh, yeah, he's like, basically everything I've ever learned is that really the principal of the firm has to be the chief salesperson. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's really tempting to be like, oh, but we we're different. We can do this better. But now having done this for, you know, a pretty significant season of time and talking to other people that we admire and respect, really what we found is that it's pretty difficult to hire a salesperson. And here's why. The primary reason is because when you're going out and selling creative services, you are selling blue sky. You're going out and you're saying, hey, let me cast vision for what could happen with your creative services. Uh, and here are ideas and here's, here's areas we could go. And a professional salesperson doesn't want to do that. That takes a lot of time. They want to say, hey, here are the packages. Here are the things that we could sell. Let me take this website off the shelf and sell it to you. Let me take this service line and sell it to you. Uh, and it loses the consultative nature of the sales process. But it's much more efficient and it's very clear uh, what that salesperson is doing. But it, it, it was really difficult to actually garner buy-in from the prospect when you just say, hey, let me take this website product off the shelf and, and, and plug it in where you need it. And so we just found we've spent tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars on hiring Salesforce. And it just never worked. That's probably the biggest financial risk, I guess I should say. I don't know that it was a mistake, right? You got to try it. But it was, it was one of the ones you go look back and go, man, it sure would be nice to have all that money back Yeah, <laughs> because it didn't really work. From a sales perspective, since I was in sales, it's different. I, I can say the principal knows their business and they know everything that you're selling. When coming into a business and you don't fully understand it is a learning curve of understanding yeah. what's being sold, how that it's too. being sold, and all the details in between where it's much easier when like you've been in it and you know your business. And you know the capabilities. The yeah. What can yep. my team actually deliver? And what yeah. you can say yes to, what you can say no to. And then coming from that standpoint rather than just like, I think we can do these things right. like, and then have, and let's be honest, back. I sold things on Liz's behalf that in hindsight, she'd be like, why did you sell that? But we're married. And so I'd be like, what's yours is mine. You know, like, sorry. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and you know, and even an author, like a fully authorized agent who is supposed to be out there making th that's just different. I sold a project uh, that was going to be awesome. And it ended up being the nightmare of our existence and really made me never wanted to make that mistake again. You know, but you so. felt really good about the sale in the beginning, didn't you? You're like, yes. everything in our lives. Yeah. 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 I felt great about it at the beginning. Okay. So, but here's the other thing. I still feel like maybe we just haven't ever done it right. The sales stuff, because there are tons of other agencies out there that have 
sales teams that are selling things and selling big projects. I think they also have a larger staff with a more robust training uh, involved. Yeah. Like it's not that you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's true. It's a mistake we made. I think we probably didn't equip well. Again, back to the genesis of our, how we started was with one large client. And mm-hmm. when I look at some of the other folks that I've interacted with at agencies, uh, it's very similar for them. You know, maybe that client mm-hmm. is Pepsi Cola or maybe that client is Red Bull. And inside that vertical, those enterprises are so much bigger than a university. Inside that vertical, what ends up happening is that, you know, a lot of times it's maybe the head copywriter or maybe it's the head art director on that project gets so ingrained with the client that they move from what I'll call a production role into an account management role, and then ultimately into a business development role on that client. Yeah. Uh, I think that's typically what happens in, you know, in, in a lot of other agencies. That, and so basically it's like the producer evolves into a role where they know what the client needs and they know the capabilities of the agency and they build it out in the vertical of that client. And right. for us in our market, you know, Omaha is a small market. There are not many big Well, there's no Pepsi Colas. There's no Nikes in, yeah. in Omaha. And so to achieve that would be really difficult. And so you're kind of having to go out to any vertical, you know, to totally any other small business that's interested in creative services. And I think probably a lot of people that listen to our podcast would be in a similar situation, you know, where they, they don't have one huge corporation that they can kind of move inside of, see career progression and move from producer to account management to, to business development. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's also part of the challenge is just the, the client mix that we, we have access to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I worked at Meredith Corporation and they have their separate roles. They, they have the sales, they have the client relationships manager, they have all the people in between those conversations. And yeah. I, I feel like they, they do it well, but they're like Times Magazine. They're those right. larger, those are the Pepsi Colas, those type of corporations and organizations. That's so right. what we're saying is like, because of the size of our team and the size of our clients, having a salesperson we're not set up for that mm-hmm. because yeah. in the creative agency world, that account manager and client services person is dual sales, right? They're that client coordinator. They're that client services and also business development because they are biz devving with the clients that they service. Yeah, right? I, will be. S- I will say that some sometimes our team is like you said, wears a bunch of hats and is sales. So like in a smaller agency like ours, everyone can sell something. Yeah. I think that's that's also the mindset that we've gravitated towards more mm-hmm. in the last like two years is that yeah. if you're having a conversation with a client and you mm-hmm. see an upsell, mm-hmm. being able to recognize it and then bring it across the finish line through those conversations is kind of, yeah. it's kind of cool in a smaller agency like ours to be able to do that. And that's where we've landed is like, okay, so we don't carry a sales team. We are the sales team. Chelsea and I manage client relationships and therefore also manage sales, do the sales, right? And then I know you help with sales, Andrew, and have always in the past. So like you're saying, Chelsea, that's kind of where we landed with that, you know? Mm -hmm. I think there's two big jumps for agencies. I think when you go from zero to one, never underestimate how significant it is to go from nothing to something. Zero to one is the hardest move ever. So for us mm-hmm. going from freelancer to, hey, we've got people working under us, that's step one, You know where you go from solopreneur to team. 
The mm-hmm. next is where you try and go from small team to medium sized team. And that could be three to four people to 10 people, because now all of a sudden you have to create process in order to have workflow through the system. You have to go to the next level. You can't just speak to everyone around the table. You have to have some sort of process. Mm-hmm. And then the jump that we, you know, we never really got to from there was like enterprise level. Mm-hmm. That's where you're like 50 people. Mm-hmm. You've got executives, management staff, you know, what I'll call producer staff underneath it. And, you know, that's where you can start to insert some of this biz dev professional team. And I think part of our challenge and, you know, part of the cost for us is that making that jump is difficult to do, to go from small and medium-sized team to enterprise level, because you need the capital to achieve it, i.e. you need large clients uh, Mm -hmm. that are willing to take a risk on a medium-sized team to help you grow to a large-sized team. It's tricky. And you need unbelievable talent that can exist in a small team and can grow into that medium-sized role. Uh, Talent is the linchpin for all of this and finding really successful people that can have a small business mindset and translate into a a medium-sized enterprise. Difficult. Those are hard to find. That's a great point. Okay. So what are some of the big time successes that we've had? as a company? Like what are the things financially that we've done as an organization that has been super successful? I would say 85% of small business success is survival. You're going to have very successful seasons where you sell big projects and there's lots of work and there's lots of cash flow, And just by the way of business cycles, and this is every business, I don't care what business you're in, there are cycles. There are going to be lean times. And you know, when I observe other businesses, other entrepreneurs, if they cannot weather the lean times and get to yeah. the next season of growth, that's what puts them out of business. And yeah. cash flow management is, is everything. Being able to retain your talent, keeping them paid and being able to reinvest in the business uh, is everything. You have to be able to manage that. And I think that's one of the things we've been able to do. I think anytime, like now, now having operated day club for, I think 12 years is what we're coming up on something like that. 11 mm-hmm. or 12 years. Yeah. You know, I look at some of these businesses and I see on the side of their truck, family owned for 50 years. And I'm like, my goodness, what an yeah. accomplishment, <laughs> you know, like yeah. to make yeah. it 50 years, what an accomplishment, you know, because that yeah. means they've weathered a lot of very significant business cycles yeah. um, and it's challenging, especially, you know, for the folks that are running an agency, because we're are artists first, typically, you know, Liz is a, your degree is in fine art, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and so the idea of not taking all the chips off the table when you have a really big win year so that there is some grain in the store bins for when the the harvest is lean is paramount. It's super important. And, you know, and I think that goes both for retaining talent, but also one of the challenges with an agency is you are also covering the cost in most cases of producing the art, buying the art and placing the art, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're buying outdoor overhead, you know, billboard space, you have to pay for the production of the billboard itself, the vinyl, you have to pay for the space on behalf of the client. And so managing those cash flows of, you know, paying the vendor, producing the art, and then buying the, the real estate space when, you know, that vendor wants to get paid net 30, maybe your clients are only paying you net 60 or net 45, as much as you try and push on them to pay you faster, you've got to cover those cash flows. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really tricky. Somebody could very easily find themselves in a place where they don't have the money to do that. And then guess what? You're not an agency anymore. And in fact, yeah. you probably owe your client money and that's a bad deal to be in. So it's like one of those things that I think a lot of people, when they set out to do this, don't think about. 
of like, yeah. okay, I'm going to sell outdoor overhead space on billboards to my clients. I'm going to have to float that. You know, until my client pays me. Uh, yeah. And that can be really significant. We've had some bigs, like especially like experiential projects where the float cost for the client is five figures, sometimes six figures uh, before we get paid. And that's can be pretty stressful. And so managing that, I think financially is a big win for us that we've been able to do and survive yeah. for quite a, quite a period of time. And I also think we've been really good at attracting talent. Like mm -hmm. The quality of the work that we put out for being a small mid agency is really high. And that all comes down to the ability to attract and retain great talent. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was trying to figure out a couple of weeks ago, how many people we've had work for us over the last decade. And I think we're over 25 or 30 people that have, have rolled through here and gone on to bigger, better things. And there's nothing more complimentary to me than when a staff member goes and takes a bigger, better job someplace else. It means that we've been an incubator for some significant talent. I don't, I don't hardly get upset when somebody goes to a brand and takes a marketing manager role or a creative mm -hmm. director role. To me, that's like, that's a pat on the back on what we've been able to help develop. That person has their own talent, but also we've been able to incubate them to a place where they're an attractive candidate for a brand. And we've got a lot of those out in the community at this point, now, which is cool. Yeah, that's interesting. I think another thing for me that I feel like financially we've done well is, you know, a few years in, you really talked a lot about how in agency life, it's very much like you do one project, it ends. You do another project, it ends. You do another project, it ends. And there's this constant, like you always have to find a new project to keep the money coming in yeah. and how it's always like start, stop, start, stop. And you started talking to me about figuring out ways to have recurring revenue in the business yeah, And we figured out how to execute that by starting so, like ongoing social media for clients. And we started managing clients' websites ongoing, like on a retainer basis and hosting their websites ongoing. And, you know, we just started coming up with like new service offerings that allowed us to have recurring revenue. And yeah. that's something I'm super proud of because it was like, hey, we're seeing this need in the business. Okay, we got to figure this out. What are those things that we can do to create some recurring revenue so it's not always a start stop type of project? And we did, we executed on that. And that's something I'm super proud of that we've done financially for our business, right? That's huge down to the legal documents so that we create for day cloud and having like the extended period, like you need a 30 day period in order to cancel. I mean, 60, that leaves 60, 60 days, whatever it is, depending <laughs> no, on what it is. I know. But <laughs> just for instance, having that cushion of like, instead of a client cold Turkey canceling, whatever they're yeah. doing with you that same day, and you having yeah. to worry about paying an employee, there's that cushion there for yeah. like, they're going to still be paying us for another 60, 90 days, whatever it is. So yeah. we have time to pick up another client. We have time to adjust. We have yeah. time to like make those changes. Yeah. And not a lot of people have that in place um, yeah. starting up. And so they're like, oh, this client says they're done. I guess they're done. Yeah. Um, and then they have yeah. to figure it out. 
Yeah. Yeah. Those are hard fought lessons. You know, a lot of that is just stuff that we've had to work out over the years, you know, and I I love how you framed that Liz of like, we looked up and we're like, man, we are constantly whale hunting. And what Mm -hmm. happens in the business cycle is you go out and you get a client and you know, the client work ramps up and it's going really great. Your billing is increasing. But guess what's happening along like that way. You're producing the work for the client. What are you not doing? You're not going out and getting more clients, right? Because you can't, you're, you're trying yeah. to maintain the client relationship and do the work. And then the, the project hits its natural apex, whether that's mm-hmm. a branding project, a web development project, whatever that may be, reaches a natural apex. And then the client work starts to decline, right? You know, you do the rollout and so, the, so do the billings. Mm-hmm. And then before you know it, you're at the bottom end of that, that sales cycle with the client and you go, oh shoot, we need more work. And we haven't been doing it. Mean, we've been doing all the client work. And so now we have to go get more work. Mm-hmm. And so what we had to do is we had, we were seeing this and it was like, man, we're going through these real peaks and valleys of cash flows. And so we had to say, Hey, we need some constant recurring work. And of course, social media management is one of them, but that's a really tough business line for anybody who's listening, thinking about going into social media management. God bless you. We all know it's a lot of work. Clients yeah. have mondo unrealistic expectations for outcomes. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not wild about that particular piece of work, but it is a constant stream in most cases. But like some of the things you mentioned have been really transformative for us at scale. Initially, they don't add up to much. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, we're yeah. charging you X amount a month for website hosting. It doesn't sell any much. But once you get 40 or 50 customers on there, pretty soon it's like, well, like that's real revenue over time. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's an engine that you have to build. It's been really transformative for us and given us space to be able to take some pressure off of the constant whale hunting of the next big project to bring in, you know, to use that example. But yeah, I think that's been huge. And it allows us where we're at now to be selective on the projects that we pick up. We don't have to say yes to everything. We don't have to jump at every opportunity where we can take time to digest what's being asked and if that client is a good fit for us. And Mm -hmm. so then it allows us that grace period in order to figure it out. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's true. Yeah. Okay. Last question for you, Andrew, what would you say are the top three hot takes for like financial advice that you would give to other creative, whether it's agency owners or freelancers out there, high level, anything you think that would be beneficial for them or valuable for them to know as they're on this journey of like owning a creative business? Top three. Yeah. I'll start the first one with a story that I just recently heard. It was a professional speaker. And he said that he'd just gotten his fees for speaking engagement to $10,000 in engagement. He got a call from a prospective event and they said, Hey, finances are tight. Oh gosh, could you do it for $4,000? And so he thought to himself, Oh, you know, maybe I'll get another speaking gig out of this. And maybe there'll be somebody in the room that'll get it. And so he said, sure, I'll do it. Goes, delivers the speech, tears it up, does awesome. As he's walking out, the event manager passes him the check, puts it in his briefcase, gets on the plane, glances at the check, sees it's for $10,000. He's like, wow, incredible. Gets home, examines the check closer, and he actually got the wrong check. It was for the speaker before him. And he realized in that moment that he had discounted his own fee. He wasn't confident in what he was worth. And so by allowing the negotiation, uh, he had discounted his value. And in that moment, he made a decision like, I'm never going to do that ever again. Uh, And so Hmm. I would say to freelancers and small agencies specifically, know your worth. Everybody wants something for nothing. 
And there's always somebody who's willing to do a project for cheaper. But at the end of the day, you need to know your worth. There is no award for doing project for the cheapest and you need to be able to get paid. And part of the, your worth is the cost of client acquisition. It's very difficult to get work. And so mm -hmm. you have to earn some of that cost back of going out and acquiring new projects. Mm -hmm. And so thereby your fees should be significant. Will AI and other technologies change things? Maybe, but the creative services business is more than just the production of art. It is idea generation. It is managing the client and it's acquiring the client. And so you need to charge what you're worth. Don't be the speaker that discounted his fee 60% when the person before him got paid the full freight. Okay. Hmm. So that's one. And we've seen that over and over and over again. And our confidence of charging what we're worth has only increased over time. But those are hard fought lessons. I think that's the first one that I would say is like, charge what you're worth. The second is cash is oxygen. You mm -hmm. need cash. And the best way to achieve a significant cash flow in your business is just be an absolute laser focused ninja when it comes to margins. What mm. you charge, what it costs, and what that profit margin is, how much you, you know, income, expense, including your, your pay, and then margin left over is everything. That's the only way you'll have a going concern, a, a, an enterprise or even just a solopreneur business is to be laser focused on margins. Sometimes we get kind of annoyed when some of our vendors are so super insistent on margins and fees. But when I put my hat on of thinking about this, I'm kind of proud of them. I'm like, well, <laughs> this is what I would tell a young person to do. This is what I tell a smaller agency to do is like, yeah, yeah. I, I know my worth and I, I'm focused on my margins. And that, that's important. Yeah. And then I think that the third thing is, is make sure you have legally enforceable documents. We have unfortunately had clients try to not pay us. And so Chelsea alluded to this earlier. Our documents today are very robust. I did not try to do this on my own. I'm not a lawyer. So we hired a white shoe law firm to, to draft what I would describe as extraordinarily aggressive legal documents <laughs> for our engagement agreements by design. And yeah. we want documents that if somebody else who's competent reads them goes, wait a minute, this is very one-sided in your favor. Yes. Because That's we've had point. to collect. Yeah, yeah, we've had to collect. And we don't have a piece of property that we can go, you know, uh, pick up from you. Like we didn't sell you a car that I can go repo, right? Yeah. It's our ideas. And so if you try to not pay us for ideas, we can never get those back. And so have a sophisticated IP attorney draft your documents that are heavily enforceable, that are one-sided to your favor. Mm -hmm. And if a client wants to negotiate over that, great, peace. But you will be convinced how important a document is once you have to try and enforce it. So I know they're not pretty. And as a designer, you want to have a beautiful one page agreement, but that's Stop. probably not going to be enforceable. Uh, so get a real bad to the bone document. And oh, by the way, there's also something that legitimizes you with a customer when you roll in with a significant document that yeah. says, I've done this before. We found it actually improves the, the legitimacy of your relationship with the client where they go, oh, this person, this isn't the first time they've done this. So I think investing in that is a significant way to, you know, maybe it's a financial hot take. I don't know, uh, but it's, it's a great way to improve your business. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's true because when we first started out, we did have a pretty contract. It was like in a nice sans typeface and all this stuff and then was it pink when, with like legally blonde style no no <laughs> not i'm yeah. not 
I'm not gross, Chelsea, but, um, <laughs> but then the new contracts that we have is let's just say that it's designed by Mr. Andrew Hunt over here. So it is black font and it's in Times New Roman. So it is not pretty. Highly but, legible. Yes, but it looks like a legit attorney wrote it and it looks legit. Like Andrew said, people definitely they take you find, serious. Yeah, mm -hmm. they definitely take it more seriously, I think. And yeah. we've had fewer issues with getting paid since we started enforcing this new contract that we now have. It makes a big difference. It does. Yeah. Just presentation is everything. And it's not always a pretty presentation. Sometimes it's the appropriate presentation that actually mm -hmm. matters. One yeah. last thing. I know you said it was the last question, but I think it's worth it. We started yeah. off the top talking about being scrappy. And there are yeah. two areas where I, where I will tell listeners to not be scrappy. Don't mm -hmm. try and just figure it out on your own. The first is this is what we're speaking about now, legal agreements. Don't be scrappy. Yeah. Hire a lawyer. Uh, you're not a lawyer and LegalZoom is not your lawyer. You need to go hire. <laughs> you need to go hire an attorney. There's a reason that people go to law school for three years and, and practice law. And I know it's expensive, but it, it will save you so much more money if you do it right up front. The second is accounting. Your payroll taxes, your quarterly estimated taxes. Listen, I tell people all the time that Al Capone did not go to prison for being a mobster. He went to prison for not paying his taxes. And so uh, <laughs> that's an accountant joke for you. There you go, guys. Here's the deal. If you're not an accountant and don't speak that language, don't try and just figure it out. You need to hire a bookkeeper slash accounting firm. Uh, and don't yeah. hire the cheapest one. Hire a real one. Because at the end of the day, if you screw that up, it's going to put your whole business in jeopardy. So those are two things to not be scrappy on and to hire a real partner that's going to grow with you and help you mm -hmm. become more sophisticated over time on how you track your expenses, how you pay your taxes, how you make sure you filed everything appropriately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One question. Can you answer if to hire someone to help them with their taxes and things like that? Does it matter if the person that's helping them is a true CPA or not? It's a good question. Does it matter? Well, any certification like CPA is shows a commitment to the craft. And a CPA, that license specifically, it's a state licensure, it allows that person to represent you in front of the IRS. There's another licensure that allows that person to represent you as well. It's called EA, Enrolled Agent, a similar requirement. It's specific just to taxes. CPA speaks to accounting and taxation. They're, they're a bit different. And so uh, I would not hire anyone who doesn't have that credential because Which it shows one? a com uh, CPA or EA. Either one okay. uh, are qualified to represent you from a tax perspective. From a bookkeeping perspective, I think CPA is the gold standard. You're going to pay that person for sure, but that's somebody that's really showed a commitment. It's a very difficult exam. Uh, they've showed a real commitment to the craft of accounting and, and taxation. You're going to be able to hold them to a high quality expectation on what they're producing for you. And I kind of look at it both ways, right? They're committed and by way of holding themselves out that way, I can hold them to a high standard. Interesting. Hmm. All right. Well, we're at the top of the hour. Thanks for joining us today and dropping some knowledge on us. If you like this podcast, like, share, follow. We'd love to hear your feedback. And if you need any financial advice, we can hook you up with Andrew. <laughs> if you want, want to learn about investments, we can get you in touch with him. Our email is show at agency-rocket.com. Please reach out. Bye. 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 Bye.